This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. Hey, this is John Lynch, 49ers GM and Pro Football Hall of Famer, and you're listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest 4-2. Welcome to part two of this week's iTest for Two podcast. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we are, of course, Hall of Fame voters and joined, as always, by our Hall of Fame producer, Ian Glendon, as we are each week. But that's not all. That's not all, guys, because we have a special guest with us today. And that's former general manager Ernie Corsi, who was the first NFL GM I ever covered. And that was way back in 1982 strike short short in the season of 1982 when he was with the Baltimore Colts and I never ever forgot what he told me when we first met and that was I will never lie to you I may not tell you everything but I will never lie to you and you know what he never did that is in stark contrast to a GM that I later covered out on the west coast I won't say where but I told him that and I said, um, you know, um, if, as long as you never lie to me, that's not a problem. He goes, that's no problem because I'll never talk to you. We have a PR <laughs> department for that. <laughs> so Ernie, of course, thanks for being here and thanks so much for living up to that promise. Well, thank you for having me. And you're very kind. Thank you. This is, of course, the time when everyone talks NFL drafts and we'd like to do that with you in short time. But before we get there, uh, Giants general manager George Young whom you worked with and I know you admired, uh, and is a centennial class inductee, class of 2020, after waiting six years as a contributor candidate. I'm wondering uh, how gratified you are that he's finally in Canton and how deserving you think George is and was. Well, I'm, I'm very gratified. I, uh, my one regret is he's not here, uh, but I, I remember this, uh, uh, thing that Vino Cook, the, the great uh, quipster of college football, left me a message after we won the NFC Championship in 2000 um, with the Vikings. There were a bunch of messages and they were all the same congratulatory. There was no congratulatory, no introduction. All Vino said was, if the Gipper knows, your father knows. And I hope that if the Gipper knows, George knows, because he sure, certainly is deserving uh, and I, I think he's, you know, he, he was a very different, I, I worked for several general managers and uh, I, it started with Klos, Don Klosterman, who's very underrated, Joe Thomas, who of all of them was probably the most astute judge of talent. And, and George, when I came back to the Giants as his assistant, um, and George was very different. He was very, everything was close to the vest. He didn't say much. He didn't preach to you. I mean, Joe would give you a thousand theories a day, which was very 
valuable to me. I mean, I, it was like going back to Harvard Business School if I was a business person. Uh, he always talked about how he drafted for those three clubs that he built. And I learned a lot from, from Joe's. George wouldn't do that. I mean, we would take long car rides together to Baltimore, unfortunately, mostly for funerals like Johnny Unitas's or John Stedman's. And I'd have to get everything, draw, drag everything out of him. And somebody just told me, asked me recently, what did he say to you about Lawrence Taylor? I was working for the Browns at the time. What did he, or the Colts? He said, I, what did he say to you about Lawrence Taylor leading up to that draft? I said, nothing. What, I said, he wasn't going to say anything to me about Lawrence Taylor. He didn't. As close as we were, and we talked two, three times a week uh, for usually an hour at a time, but he never hinted anything, and I never asked. I thought that was a crossing the line. But George is very deserving. Uh, I'm so happy that he's there, and and uh, it's sort of his legion of friends around the National Football League. Uh, Ernie, what do you think his greatest accomplishment was? Um, bringing together uh, an organization that had been fractured uh, within the Mara family or hiring Bill Parcells or selecting some of the players you mentioned, Lawrence Taylor, Phil Sims, and other uh, that he did. But um, is there one that's better or greater than the other? N- not really, because I, I don't th- you know, I think to be a great general manager, you have to be able to do everything, particularly in the era that he was and I was, that, that you were a, a, really an all-encompassing general manager, him more than me, because he had a unique circumstance here. And you have to be able to do everything. I mean, if, if you're not a good – I think the one thing that's overlooked with evaluating people that make these decisions is they're – if they're, they're evaluators, yes. You ha- if you can't build a team, then you're not going to win. But the part of it that's overlooked is the part that you're an executive. So, so many of these hirings are scouts, <laughs> and they're very good evaluators. But a lot of them haven't worked in an office, and they're – there's something about that. I mean, you have to have a sense of presence and fairness to every part of the organization, from uh, the training room to the, to the equipment room to uh, the, the video room, and, and and have a relationship with all these people and have them trust you and be able to lead them. And he, so he he did everything. I mean, I learned probably that I, what I learned most from him is how to be a general manager long before I was one. I remember we would sit together in the press box for cult games when, you know, we were both making $14,000 a year. And, and, uh, you know, I, if there, if there'd be a bad call or something, I mean, I wouldn't make a scene. You were in my press boxes and, and, uh, but I would whine and moan. And, and I, I finally said to George one time, you don't make a sound. And I know you're furious or you're seething over there. He said, would it, have, would it make any difference? And that was that was George. Like, what what good is it going to do for me to complain up here, you know, a mile away from the field? That's not going to make any difference. If I was a coach, I might be yelling at the official, hoping we get the next call. But I'm not down there. And that was George. You you know, he didn't waste time, and, and things, you know, things didn't really bother him outwardly. I mean, you couldn't tell with him if something. I mean, I got to know him so well. I got to the point where uh, I could tell with him, but. Yeah. Some of the time, not all the time. He just, he was, uh, he, he was very private and, and kept his opinions and, and, his, and his feelings a lot in, in, inside. And, and, uh, but he really taught me how to be an executive. Ernie, uh, uh, it's always gratifying to welcome a former sports writer to the show, Mr. Corsi. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Ernie, you, you're, you're in Baltimore, 1976. And, 
you happen to have a quarterback named Burt Jones, and this is for Ian Glendon, our producer, a young man who probably never heard of Burt Jones, Ernie, but he happened to be the MVP of the National Football League in 76, and that's a year when the Raiders lost one game and they got Ken Stabler, and Burt Jones was the MVP of the league. Um, and Burt, then he hurts his shoulder. He's kind of never the same and kind of sum up, sum up the greatness of, of Burt Jones and what could have been. He was, uh, and, and I know, you know, I'll be accused of being biased, but he was one of the greatest quarterbacks I've ever been around. I mean, if you look at that team, um, and, and, you know, he, he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame because he didn't play long enough. And he, and he didn't win Super Bowls, although I think he would have if he wouldn't have hurt his shoulder and then eventually his neck. But he was a Hall of Fame talent. He was a Hall of Fame performer. If, if you we, we lost a double overtime game on Christmas Eve in 77 in the playoffs to the Raiders. They had seven Hall of Famers on that team. I mean, we, we didn't have a player that is, I don't think has ever gotten a vote. I, I mean, we had the sack pack, and they were – but nobody has ever – I don't think any of those four ever got a Hall of Fame. Maybe George Coons somewhere along the line at left tackle. But, uh, I mean, it, it was it was burnt. And, and when we won three straight divisions, New England had the best player in the league in about six positions. Uh, you know, they had, they had Russ Francis. They had uh, Gray, Leon Gray, the offensive guard. They had the offensive John tackle. Hannon. They had John Hannon. John Hannon. Yeah. They had Michael Haynes. Uh, they had Tim Fox. Uh, they had Sam Hunt as far as an inside linebacker. And, and, you know, but we had Burt and they had Grogan. Grogan was good, but he wasn't Burt. And we had Roger Carr, who nobody could cover, and they were their wide receiver was Stanley Morgan, who was a converted running back. Uh, and we had the sack pack. They didn't have a pass rush; they had a blitz. We didn't have to blitz. I mean, we had like 137 sacks in three years with that sack pack without having to blitz. But if you look at the rest of that lineup that we had, Ed Simonini, who was a middle linebacker, was shorter than me. Uh, Stan White was about an inch taller than me. I mean, we, you know, we didn't have players like they had, but we had Burt Jones, and that's how good he was. And I, and I don't want to, you know, talk too long about it, but I want to tell you that, and I, I asked him this just recently on a podcast. He threw the greatest pass I ever saw. We, we had fallen behind New England 27-10 to 10 in the last game of the 77 season, and it, it, it was a winner-take-all. If we lost the game, we were out of the playoffs. We won it. We won the division. And – we, we came back, and we were all, the ball ran, rolled dead on the one-yard line, a punt. And we had, a, we had 99 yards to go. And on the first play, he threw from about three yards, four yards in the end zone, he threw a, a P out to the 50-yard line to Dowdy. Now, there had to be a lot of protection for that to happen. But it's the greatest pass I've ever seen. I mean, he threw a laser. Now, you, we all know that the out is the toughest pass to play, the throw. And I'm talking about 18, 20-yard outs. This was 55 yards. And I asked him that. And he, he said to me, I mean, he wasn't bragging and boasting. He does, he's that son of nature. But he said, yeah, that was the greatest pass I ever threw. I mean, that got us going, and we went back and won the game. But that was Bert. And he could take a team on his shoulder. And, and for, for Iris' purposes, and I think you know this, Clark, he hurt his shoulder in the, on the, in the sixth preseason game in 78 in the fourth quarter 
They put him back in the game to try to win the game against the Lions on that hard rock artificial turf in the Silver Dome. And he, he got run over by – Doug English ran over him and knocked him on the turf. Her shoulder was never the same. Yeah. You know, was, um, Ernie, I, I want to know, what, what did you do to the football gods, Ernie? What the heck did you do in Cleveland – I mean, right from the start, and, and this is going to be painful, Mr. Accorsi. Um, 85, you're up 21-3 to the Dolphins playoffs. You lose the game. 86, we got the Elway drive. 87, the Ernest Biner fumble. And Ernie, here's my question. 80, 88, you got a pretty good team. Kosar gets hurt. You, you got Don Strzok on, on the team, Ernie, and then you go into a playoff game. You lose to Houston with Mike Pagel. Ernie, why, why was Mike Pagel getting the start in that game? Because everybody else was hurt. We had six quarterback injuries, four different quarterbacks. Two of them got hurt twice. We lost Danielson for the season. Bernie got hurt twice. I had Pagel on the team, thank God. He beat the he might not remember, he beat Indianapolis in a Monday night game through for 260 yards. Uh, but then I was down to one quarterback, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, I finally signed Strzok, who was kind of an assistant pro with Doral. And, and we brought him in, tanned, a little flabby, and he beat the Eagles. He threw for 275 yards and beat that great Eagle defense. And, and, uh, but we, we were getting Kozar back the next week. And, and um, we got a couple of unsportsmanlike conduct penalties that drove us out of field goal range. We, we, we lost 24-23. We had a, you know, a makeable field goal to win the game. That was another Christmas Eve heartbreak. And, and, um, but that was the greatest coaching job Marty Schottenheimer ever did, and he lost his job after that season. Ernie, at that point, didn't you feel you were kind of snake bit, Ernie, after all that? No, they – well, Football guys were pretty good to be with Eli, so I'm not complaining. Secondly, <laughs> they also brought me pass rushers. And I, when I think back, and I, that team didn't have pass rushers. That's why we – the only way you can stop a great quarterback is put him on the ground. There's no other way to stop him. And I learned my lesson. And in New York, that's all I drafted to the point where I was getting criticism. When I drafted Kiwanuka and we had Osi Unamunura, Tuck, and Strahan – you know, people, the media criticized me. Well, you need other things. Well, I said, you better get used to this. I'm going to pick fast rushers till the cows come home. And, and those two Super Bowls, those two Super Bowls were the two Super Bowls that Brady has admitted. He said it was like throwing through redwood trees. We didn't have pass rushers, and we that's what killed us with Elway. And, and we had a blitz, and he just, you know, he made some pinpoint throws. I mean, he was just a great player, and sometimes you're going to get beat by a great player. We're speaking with former GM Ernie Accorsi on the eye test for two. And Ernie, um, I'll be honest with you, you can't talk enough Burt Jones with me. Um, these guys know Unitas is my favorite quarterback, but boy, I love watching Burt Jones play. And, and I talk to people who haven't seen him, like our Ian Glendon producer, and say, you should have seen this guy play. And I think it was at the 2007 uh, Super Bowl, and that was uh, where you upset the New England Patriots, who were then defeated when Bill Belichick on Sunday, a week before the game, was asked, who's the greatest passer you ever saw? And he said, well, the greatest passer or the greatest quarterback you ever saw, he said, the greatest passer I ever saw 
was Burt Jones. And if you didn't see him, you don't know what I'm talking about. But Burt Jones was no. the greatest passer I ever saw. And this is the guy who coached Tom Brady. Um, you so, know, I, uh, I have to tell you, it, it's uh, he was inducted into the National Football Foundation College Hall of Fame. And I went to it and Eli was there because I think they honored his father that night. And Burt said, um, he said, take, let's take a picture with Eli. He said, and Burt said, he drafted us both. I said, Bert, I didn't draft you, but since the guy who did has passed away, I'll take credit for it if you want to give it to me. But, uh, these are the quarterbacks that I had in my career. I, I had nothing to do with the first two. I walk in, I walk in with Johnny Unitas, Burt Jones. Then we drafted Kozar. We traded for Eli. And in the middle, I had Kerry Collins who took us to the Super Bowl. And, you know, just getting ready for this interview, I, I those, those, Four, those five quarterbacks uh, were in four Super Bowls, won three of them, were in the playoffs 16 years and in seven championship games. And if there's one thing I learned besides pass rushing is you better get a quarterback. Yep, and yep. when you have a quarterback, you always had a chance. And I, I learned that so early in my career when, uh, you know, I'd, I'd look at John, and especially on the road, you're always more nervous when you're going from the hotel to the stadium in a bus. And I look over at John, it was almost took you back to when you were a kid and you would say, you know, he got, we have him on our side. And, and the thing is, there's no assurance that you're going to win the game because of him, but there's a pretty good assurance you have a chance to win. And if you don't have a quarterback, sometimes you don't have a chance to win. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you're one step ahead of me as usual, but I was going to ask you, and I will ask you, you're the GM who drafted Elway, Bernie Kosar, and the Kosar deal was a, uh, a genius move of maneuvering. It was the 85 supplemental draft. And then Eli Manning, and all were successful, and, and two won a pair of Super Bowls each. And, and I wanted to just ask you that, how do you measure quarterbacks and great quarterbacks? What's the defining characteristic for you when you look at them? Well, I, you know, I have a checklist that I always – and, and, and I have it, you know, it's not eight miles long, but it's too long for your show. But I, I can summarize pretty much that from a physical standpoint, the first thing that I have to see is accuracy. Because there are certain things in sports that I don't think you can learn. You might be able to get better at, but I don't think you can get very good at. I don't, if you have a slow release as a quarterback, you aren't getting a fast release. It ain't going to happen, okay? And I've always said this, you can teach a guy to be an okay hitter, but you can't, you can either hit major league pitching and you can't hit major league pitching when you're in the crib. And I, and, that, and to me, accuracy is one of those things. You'll go crazy trying to teach accuracy. And so that's the physical part, the, the intangible part. The intangible part, I'll take you back to my first training camp. It would happen to be in Golden, Colorado. And I'm standing, and I'll, I had been to Penn State for two years. I hadn't seen the United States since 67. And I certainly didn't have a trained eye yet. But in 67, he was the old United. He had a great year. 68, he got hurt. In 69, he was playing injured. So I'm watching him in Golden, Colorado. And the reason we were out there was we didn't play preseason games at home. And, and we were playing three or four games. There were six games then on the West Coast. So that's where we based our training camp. And Milt Davis was standing with me. Milt was our West Coast scout, a wonderful man. In fact, I eventually hired him in Cleveland. A, de a defensive corner who started in the 58-59 championship game. And I'm watching the Unitas, and the velocity is not there. I mean, 
And I, I said to Milt, I said, what can we win with him? He said, pay attention to what I'm going to tell you. He said, you will, you evaluate a quarterback on his ability to take the team down the field in the fourth quarter, especially with a championship on the line and into the end zone and never forget that. And I, I always look for that. I mean, I'm not going to name names here, but starting from before I got to the Colts, there was a quarterback we beat 13 straight times that we were playing him twice a year. Uh, that He couldn't beat us. I mean, I don't care if he threw for 400 yards. In the fourth quarter, he couldn't beat us. There was another one. I was in Cleveland. There was another one we beat all the time. And that was the difference between the two teams in the championship race uh, for the division. And there are certain quarterbacks that if you're playing against them, and certainly Elway was one, you have a pain in the pit of your stomach when they get the ball. The, the, the drive game that you asked about, we, okay, he did not have a great day. Either did Bernie, but it's interesting on both of them. Bernie threw the long touchdown pass to put it to head in the last four minutes. And then Elway rose to the occasion. My point is that when the game was on the line and it was a playoff game, he did it. And that's something that, that you have to see and you have to feel. Todd Blackledge, who's an analyst, I think on ESPN, kind of summarized exactly the way I feel. One, one night, uh, play-by-play announcer was asking about breaking down a quarterback. He said, I evaluate them on third down, what they do in the red zone, and what they do in the fourth quarter with the game on the line. And that's basically, that's going to be, to me, the difference. Now, there are other things, obviously. Uh, but but that, to me, is going to be the difference between a get-by good guy who you can, if you surround them, you can win with them. Uh, I hate that phrase. Uh, or somebody who, who's going to be great is going to take you to championships. General question here on quarterbacks, Ernie. But if you miss on a quarterback who's a top 10 or a top five pick, how much damage do you do to an organization? Three years, five years? How much? It far, how far do you set them back? It's huge because if you look at all the great ones, I mean, uh, Bradshaw was drafted in 70, did not start the 74 opener. So that we played them in '74 over. He, he didn't. Joe Gillum did, and then Hanready came in later for Gillum, and then they finally put. He had played before that, but he wasn't the full-time starter. Elway, we played the Broncos twice in '83. He was pulled from both games. The Berg won yeah, both right. games for them, right? right? If you remember, right? I do. So, uh, yeah. so my point is that they're going to struggle. When uh, Shula didn't start Marino to the sixth game. Uh, Walsh didn't start I don't know what game it was that he put Montana in full time but it wasn't in the beginning of the season so the, the fact is that if you play them they're going to struggle <clears throat> and they're and you're going to you know uh, you remember the, the great late Al Goldstein from the Baltimore Sun oh, sure. I remember him he wrote a column uh, Burt Jones' second year could it be he's a bust and you know so what you're going to do, though, you're going to give them time because they all struggle, with few exceptions. They're all going to struggle, so you're going to give them time. So if you're wrong, you're wasting all that time. Yeah. And I, to answer your question, I think it sets you back at least five years. When you look at some of the picks that were made high, I mean, some of those teams, and I, I don't want to name teams, but some of those teams haven't recovered yet when you look at, you know, from the quarterback position. 
Yeah, and it's devastating. You bet. When you go up there, you better be right. Ernie, uh, I want to ask you a little bit of a different kind of question. You're in New York, mid nineties, and you're there till the mid two thousands. Now, Ernie, you know that there was a radio station called FAN that had uh, Mike and the Mad Dog, very powerful and very influential. So, Ernie, generally speaking, how much power does the media have in certain media markets? And um, and what effect do they have on the franchise or should have on the franchise? Well, it, you know, it, it, that's an interesting question because I just was discussing that with one of my former colleagues in the league this week that, uh, you know, quarterbacks play sooner now. And it, they all say, well, they train better in, in college. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, but I, I can tell you they do throw the ball more. But I know – well, I don't know, but my opinion is that there are a lot of quarterbacks who start the season as rookies because teams bend to media pressure. I mean, you're going to laugh at this, but when I first came in the league in 1970, the clock was ticking on our quarterback situation in Baltimore because the word in the organization was it takes five years. Now, there was no free agency. It takes five years. We better get somebody. And we never got anybody until John was traded and we got Burt Jones the next year. Played him too soon, by the way, that first year. But, I mean, you, if you ever talk to Sonny Jurgensen, he started as a rookie in 57, struggled, played a little in 58. The Eagles trade for Van Brocklin in 59. They won the championship in 60. I asked Jurgensen one time how upset he was that they did that, that they made that trade. He said, let me tell you something. If they don't make that trade, I'm out of the league. I'm never in the Hall of Fame. He taught me how to play quarterback. So my point was we weren't all wrong in those days, maybe not five years, but we wanted to, you know, give it time. But you, you can't – look, when you mentioned Mike and the Mad Dog, I mean, they, to me they were the two best radio co-hosts of a talk show I have ever heard, and I listen to a lot of them around the country when I travel. Outside of the, mean uh, outside of these two, outside, outside of Iron Me. Yeah, that's right. So you've changed the whole trend now. You've taken it, you've taken it to another level from what I can tell on this podcast. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's uh, up or down. <laughs> well, I won't stay. But, but you can't, you know, I always said this, Ira. I was in a, you know, I was in a draft room in Cleveland where the scouts in that room were a part of, of five straight playoffs, four divisional championships, three championship games. I was in a draft room in, in New York where, for the most part, we had some changes. They had four Super Bowl rings. I'm going to listen to that. Okay? Those are the people that are going to influence me. And you've got to block the rest of it out because, it, because as far as the media doesn't always agree, so who are you going to listen to? <laughs> and and, the, and you, you can't, you know, you just, you just have to block it out. I mean, I was aware um you know, I was aware of what was going on. I thought it was important to know because I wanted, you know, I cared about the fans and I, I wanted to know what they were reading. And I, I did. These people say, I never read the papers. Well, you should read the papers. You better, you better know what's going on. You better, I mean, I hadn't, didn't have time to listen to all the talk shows, but people told me what they were saying and I, and I wanted to know. And I went on them. I never, you know that, Clark. I, I, never, I talked to everybody. I never had uh, press conferences four times a year like they do now. Every day, I would return six and seven calls. I thought that was my part of my job. George did too, and I learned from him. But 
they are a factor. There's no question about it. And they do affect some decisions. Ernie, I want to ask you about a guy that you had in New York. He never gets any cred in the Hall of Fame room. And I'm wondering why. Because I think he might have been the best player at his position, Ernie, for about three straight years. And that's Tiki Barber. Um, Ernie, he retired at 31. He was at the top of his game. Ernie, he still ranks 15th all-time yards from scrimmage. Number 15. The only guys ahead of him that aren't in the Hall of Fame, Frank Gore, Larry Fitzgerald, Adrian Peterson, certainly the last two are going in without question, and and Gore's got a good shot. Ernie, how good was Tiki Barber at at his height? Well, he was not only a great player, and you can sign all the statistics, but he was a clutch player. I mean, he made the year we won the division, 2005, (laughs) and and, uh, we made the playoffs in six, but five, we were a pretty good team. We just had a bad playoff game. He was unbelievable. I don't know if you remember this, but on New Year's Eve, we had to stop the Raiders on a goal line stand. We had lost to the Redskins and failed to clinch on Christmas Eve. Now we're playing in, in Oakland, and we, you know, they had a like first and goal from the two. They get to the goal line, and uh, Kerry Collins, who has a quarterback sneak, doesn't get in. Now we have the ball on the goal line, but we, we're going to punt the ball. We're going to punt it out to the 35 or 40-yard line. And Tiki breaks about a 50-yard, 60-yard run. Now, you can't put a price tag on what that means to it. That, that clinched the game. That got us out of trouble, and we were able to run the clock out. But how many long runs he made that season? Well, you know, he, he was a very good back. He became a great back his last three or four years under Coughlin. He didn't fumble anymore. Um I, I mean, I, to me, you know, he's a Hall of Fame player, but I don't have a vote. You guys have votes. So I, I, I don't know why he – I don't know what if he gets serious consideration in that room. I don't know. But I think he's a Hall of Fame player. You know, it's funny, Ernie. You talk about clutch performances by Tiki Barber. <clears throat> and I'll move forward one year, 2006 season. The last game of that season, I think you were seven and eight. You had to win in Washington to get to the playoffs. And all he does is dial up 234 yards, which I'm not sure. I think it's still a franchise record, three touchdowns and you beat the Redskins. And that was to me, one of the great performances of all time in that market. Um, And Tiki Barber to me, when we were living in New York, I thought Tiki Barber and Derek Jeter owned that market. I mean, he was the guy. He he really was. And he, you know, he had charisma. Uh, He, he was, like I said, he became a great player. I thought mm-hmm. uh, the second half of his career, and and he and he did it like you just said. He did it at the biggest moments. I mean, I remember the Oakland game because you know you're terrified. You're you're, you're afraid you're not even you're, they make it a safety because you can hardly snap the ball and hand it to a back. Yeah, and I don't know how he knifed through. Was an off tackle play and he was gone. Yep. And yep. no, he was a, he was a great player. Um, going back to the draft, I'm just going to ask you a uh, sort of gratuitous self-serving question here, but uh, accepting John Elway, we forget John Elway. What's your, what's your favorite draft story or draft memory? Do you have one that you just think of like, boy, I'll never forget that, whether it was odd, whether it was significant. Is there one that stands out above the others? Well, I'm going to tell you one of them. and it, 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 I really want it shocking in the draft. 
and Tennessee was ahead of us. And, you know, you, you get, you'll get the best information you can get leading up to the draft. It's a lot of people put things out there that intentionally aren't true. Uh, so you gotta, you gotta watch what you're listening to and you gotta know who to trust. And I didn't think Tennessee was going to pick him and I thought it was going to be close. And Drew Rosenhaus, who I had a great relationship with and, and I trusted him, um, called me and he said, you're going to have to trade up to get him because I said, well, who's going to pick him? He said, Oakland. Well, I said, Oakland picks after us. He said, they're going to, they're, they're making, working on a trade with Tennessee to, right in front of you to get him because they know you want him. And uh, I gave a fourth to go one spot. Now, yeah, that sounds reckless, okay? But that was the only way I was going to get him. I had, mm-hmm. I, they, they had offered a fifth, I think, or a fourth. Only our fourth was better. And I made the trade to go with Tennessee so that the Raiders couldn't do it and, and, and get him. The other one was on the Eli thing, which people forget about. You know, we had the fourth pick. And, and I, I always said this about the draft. My sleepless nights were not because I, I didn't have confidence in our, our personnel people or myself. My sleepless nights were about the things you cannot control. Now, you're fourth position. You're in pretty good position. And we had a, almost as strong conviction about Roethlisberger as we did Eli. But I still had to worry about Oakland ended up picking gallery from Iowa and Arizona. And it, it didn't look like I was you know, going to make that trade because I didn't make it to seven minutes into my time allotment. But leading up to that point, I was holding my breath on Roethlisberger. And we had written Roethlisberger's name down in the card, ready to hand it in immediately. And that was what I was worried about. That's the thing about the draft that drives you crazy because there are, just like I said about Oakland trading over, us the, the the things you can't control are what keep you awake at night and those two those two incidents i remember the other one was david tyree he we picked him and you never do this on a one-dimensional pick he was the greatest special teams player i had ever seen in my life in college and every time we put the tape on he made every tackle on every putt he made every tackle on it and we didn't even hardly see him uh he wasn't. He didn't play that much as a receiver, and in fact, our scouts said he drops a lot of passes, and you know, in practice. So I, I don't care. He's not going to be catching passes, and so we we drafted him as a special teams player. He lived up to the billing. The day before the Super Bowl, first Super Bowl, I, I didn't go to practice. Jerry Reese said to me, he dropped every pass thrown to him. I said, I hope they're not going to put him on the field. Okay. And he makes the greatest catch in the history of the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but you Ernie, never know. I got I one mean... more. <laughs> Ernie, I got one more. Thanks so much for your time, Ernie. Um, and I got to come clean with you, Mr. Accorsi. Two years ago, and Ian knows this, Dirk Cutter was going to get fired. Five and 11, five and 11. And so I wrote a column that Cutter needs to go. And then, Ernie, the next day, I wrote a column that Jason Light needs to go as the general manager. He had been here five years and had done very little and had some, you know, really bad draft picks. 
Well, Ernie, two years later, he's holding up the Lombardi trophy. <laughs> and Ernie, here's my point. A new coaching staff came in under Bruce Arians. And it's a very good staff. And I don't have to tell you about Todd Bowles. And Ernie, all of a sudden, some of these draft picks, there's this running back, Ronald Jones. Ernie, he averaged 1.9 yards as a rookie. I mean, nobody does that. 1.9. And now, you know, he averaged 5.1. And some other guys, the defensive backs. So, Ernie, here's my point. You know, as a general manager, uh, tell me how frustrated you got at times, at times, where you didn't think maybe the coaching staff was using some of these draft picks in the right way, and uh, but you had to keep your mouth shut. Well, what's that like as a general manager? Well, it drives you crazy because I always said that uh, there's no job with, with more pressure and less control than a general manager of a football team. Now, they, you know, I, I, I read, follow baseball closely and I read it now. I read that the general managers are making pitching changes. Uh, yeah. Believe me, if I were to walk down to the coach's office and, and told one of the assistants, tell Coughlin to make this, you know, call this play, they would have thrown me out of the upper deck. But uh, that's what that's very that's, that's very frustrating. But I will tell you this on those kinds of situations, Ira, and uh, Dave Gettleman will tell you this if you, if you ask him. One of the things that he quotes me on is, don't ever give up on talent. Now, if it's 10 years, you're gonna, you can't go that long. But if you believe and have a conviction about somebody's talent, there are a lot of things that go into the fact that he may not be performing in the beginning. And my, some of them might be coaching. Who knows? But don't give up on them. Don't be trigger happy. Because so many mistakes are made where you get rid of a player and all of a sudden he blossoms somewhere else in a position that you really need. So I, I always felt that way. Don't give up on talent. But when you're upstairs, you have no control over a football game. And it's, you know, and I, I was reading about LaRusso when he decided to go back to Madison. He said, you know, how, how, he had mentioned it to, I guess, Ron Wolf. He said, how do you put up with this? He said, I couldn't stand it. You know, I'm sitting up there. They're making changes. I don't have any voice in it. But that's what it is up there. You You just have to, you know, Kind of go with the flow of it and trust your coach. Ernie, I've got two last ones, and they're quick. I mean, quick ones. Uh, another self-serving question for you, and that's George Koontz, offensive lineman. Uh, our colleague, Hall of Fame voter Rick Gosson, is very high on him as a Hall of Fame candidate, and yet he's never, ever been a Hall of Fame finalist. Can you tell us in brief what made George Koontz so special? Well, he he solidified our whole offensive line. I mean, we – you know, we had guys that hadn't played very well. That Joe tra traded for far as blue is for the center, but then Kenny Mendenhall beat him out of an undersized center. And we had Pratt and Kenny Huff and David Taylor. Uh, Huff was a high pick, but the rest of them were not. And, you know, Coons is an interesting story because we traded the number one pick at, to, uh, to, you know, swapped to get Coons. And that cost us Randy White. And we, we dropped to three. And then when we dropped to three, we passed up Waller Payton. We could have had a Hall of Famer at both of those positions. I mean, you know, not, not both of them, one or the other. So we gave up a lot to get to when you figured Randy White's one of the greatest defensive tackles in the history of this league. Right. But he solidified everything. He, he brought maturity. I mean, the, 
So the offensive line is, to me, the most mystic part of the, of the team because it's basically one. You know, I, I always thought it, it, it's a fist. And if you take one finger out of that fist, that fist doesn't have the strength. They play together. They, have, they live together. They're, you know, they're the one position. The only time their names are announced is when they're holding. Uh, they have a, they, usually that's their coaches, their offensive line coaches are like pitching coaches. They take them aside. You remember Whitey Devell. I mean, he had this, you know, he just had his group of offense and they worshiped him. And, and they, and usually the quarterback makes friends with him because he knows he has to, but they're a different group of guys. And he's the one guy that brought, you know, experience. He was the number two pick in the draft for Atlanta. He brought experience and class. I mean, he was so classy and so articulate and, and uh, powerful. He was a great, great player. I mean, he made our offensive line. And, you know, when I described that 50-yard out, that offensive line became a very good offensive line, and it really didn't have great, great talent uh, other than him. And the last one for you is, as you know, I left Baltimore to cover the San Diego Chargers, who eventually were coached by Dan Henning, ran into Dan Henning in New Orleans at a Super Bowl. And in all honesty, I, I, I think it was probably the um, Packers-Patriots Super Bowl. So it was a long time ago. But he met a group of us, and I'm talking about writers, around a, a table at Manali's. And he said, I got a quick question for all you guys. You got one drive to win the game. One drive to win the game. Who's your quarterback? And he started with me, and I said, that's easy, Unitas. And then someone said Montana, and someone said Stabler. And then Montana and Unitas went around, and Elway came up. And then we came back to me, we were finished, and uh, he said, thanks. And I said, wait, wait a minute, who's your pick? And he said, that's easy. It's Unitas. There's no one even close. Who is your pick? Well, you know that answer. Okay. <laughs> okay. You and Dan Number 19. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and I will leave, leave you with this if you're done. Uh, I, I've always you know, heard people, defense wins championships. Well, to me, defense gives you a chance to win. But we stopped Brady twice. We don't win it with those two drives, Eli Engineer. The Colts in the 58 sudden death game stopped the Giants on Gifford's third and four. But United had to drive them from the 14-yard line to tie and from the 20 to win it. Okay? And if you, if you look back at, at, you know, look at some of the teams like the Purple People, the Fearsome Foursome, uh, some the great Lions defense of sixty one and sixty two. They didn't win championships because they didn't have they didn't have the great quarterback. And yeah. when you have a if all those guys you mentioned, believe me, if I was given them with a chance to do it, I'd take them. But if I had one game to win with my life on the line, it's John Unitas. Yeah, I agree with you, Ernie Corsi. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, always, always a pleasure to hear from you. And trust me, that's no lie. You know that. Thanks, Ernie. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. You got it. That was former GM Ernie Acorsi and Ira. Um, I I love talking to him. As I said, first GM ever covered. And he's not only honest, which is rare in any pro sports, but he's so articulate and he's a historian. That's the thing I love about him. He's got a great sense of history. And Clark, what what about in his GM role saying to himself, I got to return six or seven reporter phone calls today? I mean... That says a lot. That no, says that's right. And he did. Whoa. And the fans love it when you report, return those phone calls. They love it. I, re- that's, I was there, our weekly segment. And you will appreciate this because on the throws, the follow of your I was there last week, 
I'm going one day later to January 23rd, 1983, the AFC championship game, the Jets at Miami. Now, last week, as you mentioned, you covered the NFC championship game the day before, and that was Dallas at Washington. Well, I covered this game, the Jets at Miami, as the sixth straight road game for the Jets. They had had a couple of upsets, Cincinnati and the Raiders. Um, it was the strike season, as you mentioned, 57 days strike. And it was a, not a playoff, it was a tournament. Remember that it was a tournament because it was a nine game season. Yeah. So yeah. the tournament where, um, you know, a, a team, a couple of teams, I think with losing records got in. And anyway, um, it was also the first time we had conference championship games televised regionally, not nationally. Ian's going, what, huh? And, and they were played on separate days. You were there the day before in Washington. I was there that day, um, Sunday in Miami, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained. One problem, Dolphins didn't have a tarp, so the field wasn't covered, and it just became a mud bowl. There were nine turnovers, five of them by Jets quarterback Richard Todd. He threw five interceptions. There was a total in that game of 437 yards, and of those five interceptions, three went to one guy. Do you remember a linebacker from Miami? A.J. Dewey. He had yes. three and returned one for a fourth quarter game clinching TD, 35 yards. Um, it was the last time, as a matter of fact, the Dolphins shut out the Jets until this past season, week five, this past season, long time. And one other the note from that game, just show you how much the elements had an impact on the game. Wesley Walker, who was a star receiver, remember him, he had played nine, uh, he played no, 10 games against the Dolphins before. He had nine touchdowns in that game. He had one catch for zero yards. <laughs> hey, Clark, uh, Clark, check me on this. But the next year, the Dolphins picked up some quarterback named Marino in the draft. Yeah, that, you, the are, you are correct, sir. And, and also, um, the next year, the NFL passed a rule saying, you got to have tarps and you got to put them on. I think it's <laughs> until two hours before um, the, the start of the game. But you got to have them on the field because they felt it did have an impact on that game. And he changed it forever. Anyway, our final thoughts, as usual, final thoughts. Well, I got I got to credit Ernie, of course, because Clark, the guy's an encyclopedia of modern day football. He probably could talk about the '40s if you wanted. Um, yep. What a, what an education! Spending some time with Ernie, of course. Loved it, loved it, and I want to give a shout out, by the way, to a, a former AFC great, tied at Fred Arbanis, eighty-two. He died this past weekend. Terrific player. He's in the Chiefs. Hall of Fame, and he was a six-time uh, AFL uh, All-Star, but anyway, a terrific player. And I also want to do a shout-out, and a big thank you, by the way, guys, to a couple people, actually three people, uh, Nate from Leesburg, Florida, and Rick and Ann Gudikins from Phoenix, who got in touch with me to say how much they enjoyed this podcast. So thank you so much. Great to hear from you. And speaking to that, guys, Ira, tell them where they can find you. These people found me. Where can they find you on Twitter? At iKaufman76. All donations accepted. All <laughs> Ian, where can we find you? At, excuse me, at IGLEN31. And I'm at, at Clark Judge TOF. And all donations should be made to Ian Glendon, not to Ira Kaufman, so we can split the pot. All right. And Clark, as I, Clark I, I don't think there's another podcast out there that's doing what we're doing. I, I really don't. I really don't. Well, we haven't I collected think, any donations yet. Is that what you're talking about, Ira? No, I, I think I think we're kind of unique we're, we're, we're in terms of the guests and, and, and the history of football. We I are do. unique. And as Ernie said, I'm not sure which direction we're going. Are we going up or are we going down? We'll leave it to the uh, listeners 
discretion to come up with that. Anyway, as we always say, Ira, if we don't hear from you, you will hear from us right here next week at the eye test for two, Clark. You are correct, sir. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.